Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. A few weeks ago, I received an email from an attorney friend about a referral. He didn't give me details, but he was looking for an attorney who handled veterinary malpractice cases. Now, you know we're not lawyers, but we do have many contacts in the animal and pet universe, and I was able to provide a few leads. But I do know that legal action against veterinarians is rare and successful cases for malpractice even rarer. You do hear a lot of social media chatter about someone claiming their vet harmed or killed their dog or cat, but usually things are not clear cut. And even so, the law and history and culture does not favor owners at all. So where do we stand in the area of veterinary malpractice? What are the good and bad points in current law to protect animals, treat our veterinarians fairly, and give a voice to pet owners? I'm pleased to welcome to the show Bob Ferber, attorney and former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor. Bob, let's start by having you give an overview of veterinary malpractice. What are the elements we'll need to discuss here? All right, I think the first thing to understand is that while everybody knows that there's such a thing as medical malpractice where a doctor or a hospital makes a terrible mistake that uh, can cause somebody to suffer or even die, there's a procedure in this country where you can go to a malpractice lawyer and you can sue the doctor or the hospital and you can recover not just the cost of what you paid for that surgery that went bad, but you could recover huge amounts of money for this pain, the suffering, even the impact that it might have on some of your other family members, yeah. loss of income, uh, loss of companionship. These can uh, range anywhere from ten to hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars. The difference with animals is that it goes back to a a topic that we've discussed, Lori, many times on the radio show, and your listeners are well aware of, uh, in the United States and most parts of the world, animals are not treated as living, sentient, feeling creatures, but as property. Right. And the law looks at animals in almost every situation the way they would look at damage to, let's say, your car. If a mechanic put in the wrong oil filter and it leaked on your garage floor and there's oil there and maybe damage to the car, the most that you'd be able to get from the mechanic is the cost of repairing the car and maybe cleaning up your driveway. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. Of course, we as animal lovers know that that doesn't work. Our animals are not a car or a chair, and that uh, compensating us for just the cost of the the vet visit that didn't go well is not satisfactory. And so over the years, I've gotten many, many calls from people calling me as a prosecutor, even that's not even though Lori, that's not what my job was, saying, you know, I took my cat to the vet for um, a standard, let's say, to be neutered, and he died in surgery. Or they gave him a medication, I'll say a medication called Rimadol, uh, which is a common medication given to animals, and my animal died three weeks later. And, uh, or my animal's having a whole variety of things. And people come to me and say, well, what do I do? How can I get compensated? And what they also say, by the way, is, how can I prevent this from happening again? Which is 
really important because I, th- I think it, it, it's, it's important to know that when people do have this tragedy, most of the people I've talked to don't just want money. They're not out there for that. They're out there to make sure that other animals are protected and that justice was done. Right. The problem, Lori, is that our system still looks at it as a car where the wrong oil filter was put in. And so when something terrible happens to your animal because a veterinarian did something wrong, if it's shown that it was malpractice, and I'll mention in a second what that is, the most that you can recover pretty much is the cost of whatever that vet bill was Mm -hmm. and not much more. If you have a show dog uh, that is worth something more than, you know, that has a a market value where it can be sold for like $1,000, you can get maybe that. But, of course, most of our pets that we have are not show animals. They're market value, which is the standard for uh, recovery. It's simply, you know, how much did we pay to adopt them? You know, that's about it. So now that leads us to the question of what is malpractice? Malpractice, whether it's humans or veterinarians, is defined as when the vet or the doctor does something that was negligent, that where the doctor or the vet should have known that this medication was the wrong medication and that it was negligent. That they, but it's important to stress that they should have known based on the medication, the condition of the animal, what the, pay, the client, the pet owner told the vet, and that would determine it. And it also is to find the standard for what that vet should have done that's pretty much goes by what do all the other vets in Los Angeles or the Inland Empire do, or what do all the vets in California do in this situation? And an example for is like Rimadyl, which is given for certain conditions. Rimadyl was one of the, uh, an infamous drug that when it first came out, there were many animals that died from the drug. There was a lot, and yet. Uh, the the information that was given to the vets didn't show all the side effects and the possible risks. So when when these animals died in that case, it was the med- the manufacturer that had committed negligence, not the vets. And so many people sued their vet, and the vet said, "Look, I gave the medicine. There was nothing in the flyer that told me as a veterinarian that I couldn't give this medicine to your." dog fluffy and so what would happen is there was no legal case interestingly a little footnote to that laurie is that remedial at the beginning kind of apologized in a legal way and did reimburse many dog owners for the cost of their vet bill but a friend of mine lost one of their golden retrievers to Rivendell three weeks after they were given it all they got was the reimbursement for the Five hundred, six hundred dollars for the, you know, the vet bill. So that's where that's the general definition of malpractice: is did the vet do something that they should have known they shouldn't have done? But that leads to a whole situation, a very complicated situation that, in the end, doesn't really help out the vet owner. When when somebody, I'm sorry, the pet owner, when somebody calls me, Lori, and says, this is what happened. I brought my dog to the vet, and, I, and two days later, they called me and said he died in surgery. Or the, a very common situation is, I brought my dog in 
for a simple, you know, uh, just having the ears cleaned and a dental. And I brought the dog home, and two days later, he dropped dead. And I don't know, what can I do? The first question I ask them is, how do you know that what the vet did caused it? And that's probably the most important question that people have to ask themselves. How do you know? I understand the human, it's human nature that to make a connection that, well, my dog was fine for his seven-year-old golden retriever and was fine. And then I take him home two days after dental surgery and he died. And it had to have been the vet. Well, not necessarily. The law, whether it's right or wrong to think that way, the law says no. We have to know proof. How do you know? That creates a real problem. Now, and let me back up for a second. While it may not be as likely, it's possible that the golden retriever had a pre-existing condition that we didn't know about. He might have had heart problems. And having nothing to do with the dental surgery, uh, it was a coincidence. That's possible. Or it might be that it could be a number of other things that happened that had nothing to do with what the vet did. But one of the first questions I ask people is, well, how do you know? And, Lori, in most cases, you know, the answer is usually, well, I don't really know. Uh, You know, I think it's that because my dog was healthy before. And I say, well, I know, but that's not really proof. Now, if you go to the vet and say, what the vet, what did you do? It's not rocket science to realize that the vet is probably going to tell you I did everything that is the normal thing to do. Well, that kind of kills your case. Now, in medical malpractice, Lori, what would happen is a lawyer would get the medical records from the doctor, which are very detailed by law, and go over those records and with a fine-tooth comb. If, let's say, your husband passed away or your sister, and then now it's human malpractice, you would get a volume of records. They would be reviewed by expert other doctors who would go through it with a fine-tooth comb and say, well, when your sister died, your sister had all these pre-existing conditions that the hospital knew about, but they gave your sister the wrong medication in spite of it, and that's malpractice. But... With veterinarians, one of the problems we have in the country is that veterinary records are very inconsistent. The laws are not the same as with humans. Vets are notorious for not keeping good records. One of my favorite vets, he's terrible about keeping records. He he just, you know, he's sloppy. He, He puts them together three, four days after he saw the dog. He's one of the most popular vets in Los Angeles. But when I go to him and say, well, I need the copy of the vet record that you, what you did a week ago. Oh, well, I haven't written it up yet. Uh, yeah. We laugh about that, but it's not really funny because, you know, that means it's not going to be accurate as it should be. And also, if you have an unscrupulous vet, what about them changing the records? Right. What about them writing them differently? There's not much recourse for getting those records before they might have been changed or written up to cover the vet's butt. Okay, don't go away. we got to take a break. But when we return, Bob is going to explain what we might be able to do when we do know that the veterinarian might have been careless. Don't go away. You're listening to Animals Today. 
For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Welcome back. We're speaking with attorney Bob Ferber about veterinary malpractice. Let's give a scenario. Let's say someone takes their dog in to their veterinarian for a dental procedure, and it's standard veterinary practice for that procedure that the dog's given antibiotics and gives the owner antibiotics to give to the dog after the surgery. Let's say the vet failed to do that, was careless, forgot, And then two days later, the dog develops a terrible infection, spreads to the brain, maybe meningitis, whatever, and then the dog dies. So now we know the vet failed to give antibiotics and did do something wrong. Take it from there. That's a great example, Lori, uh, because in that situation, we know that the vet did wrong. Uh, So what do you do then? You can call a lawyer and... uh, First of all, actually, the first thing would be to talk to the the doctor and say, why did, why did this happen? And actually, I, I strongly recommend that, that before you jump to going to a lawyer, to have a conversation with somebody else there to first discuss with the veterinarian what happened, why did it happen. That can have a big influence on what your decision is later on. I, I don't agree with people who suggest that you suddenly take a confrontive approach and once you find the vet did something wrong, you immediately run to a lawyer and say, I'm going to go after this vet, because I don't think that that's appropriate. And uh, many times uh, when people learn that a vet did make a mistake, but it was an innocent mistake, even if it did result in a tragic ending, that can change the way you look at it. And that's about human relationships. And I think that, you know, the, you know, having a good relationship with your vet and the veterinarian community is important. And as sad as it is, people sometimes do make mistakes that anybody could have done. So let's say you've talked to your vet and the vet says, yeah, we screwed up. And let's assume the vet is not particularly friendly about it and says, yeah, well, we made a mistake and uh, I'm sorry. You go to your lawyer, a malpractice lawyer, who then tries to get the veterinary records. Well, you have a the challenge, and my job here, Lori, is to try to set up people and let them know the challenges they face, that it's not that easy. First of all, try to find a lawyer that will do the case. This is a big part of it, is yeah. that in a malpractice case, uh, humans, they take the case on a contingency basis, meaning you don't have to put up any money up front, because there's a reasonable guarantee from the, in the lawyer's view that he's going to get or she's going to get something. In veterinary malpractice, because there's so few cases of of people recovering damages because of malpractice, most lawyers are not going to do it on a contingency fee basis. So your first challenge is to deal with the cost of, are you willing to pay twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 or more to a lawyer simply to 
take this case, you know, and do something about it, with the understanding that in this country, uh, in 99 tenths of the cases, judges still refuse to let somebody get more money, more than just the cost of the vet bill. Mm -hmm. So in your situation, you have to understand that the likelihood of getting anything more than the cost of that surgery, and is it, that's it. But let's say you decided that you have the $25,000 and you want justice. You don't want this to happen again. So you say to the lawyer, go forward. The lawyer will then go through the normal route of a lawsuit and request records from the vet. I have a lot of respect for veterinarians. Many of my closest friends are veterinarians. But I have to tell you, the possibility of veterinary records being falsified or changed is very real. Or, as I told you earlier, uh, with the situation of my favorite vet, because he does his vet records very late, which is not right, if you talk to your vet and the vet says, yeah, we we messed up, and then you're... uh, you know, your lawyer contacts the vet weeks, weeks later to get the records. Uh, that vet may not have already written up that report, so those vet records may change. It may, they may say something that will hurt the case, that will protect them. But let's say you still get the vet records, and the vet records clearly show that the veterinarian made a major mistake that in every other case, in, in that situation with that dog, in that surgery, everybody would have given antibiotics throughout the country. Now you, you go to court. You, uh, you try to get, you, you, you have to come up with, well, how much money do you want? This is the biggest problem or challenge in malpractice. And I, it was what I was saying before, Lori. The lawyer is going to tell you that in most cases, the surgery, which may have cost, let's say, $700 or 1000 bucks, that's all you're going to get yeah. for paying the lawyer $25,000. But, you know, what is, what, is, what is the pet owner really want? Well, they want more. I mean, they want the suffering, the pain. The, in some cases, there's an element of punishment that you should never have done this. Right. And also making the vet aware and the veterinary community aware that you can't get away with this. Right. You need to be more careful. But the reality is that when you go to court, without going into you know, the complicated legal analysis, and I can tell you all the cases around the country, the fact is that still in this country, the odds are you're not going to get any money for the pain and suffering that you went through or the pain and suffering that your animal went through yeah. and the pain and suffering that your family went through. And also things which is cost, there's terms like loss of companionship and things like that. So that, unfortunately, Laurie, is the reality of it, is that assuming you have the best case in the world, the biggest problem in this country is that we still in this country, not you and I, but the legal system looks at, you know, our golden retriever dog in that situation as no different than a car how about the wrong oil filter how about filing a complaint with your state's veterinary board does that get you anywhere Lori? that's an excellent question because in my own personal view that is one of the best alternatives in this country for holding vets more accountable uh, there's been articles written about that even though we still can't sue for a lot of money at least the vet should be held accountable 
by his his industry. The sad fact is that the veterinary boards around the country, or the state vet licensing board, rather, there's virtually no examples of real discipline. Right. Uh, I can right. tell you personally of many, many people that have called me that when I explained to them what I just explained to you and your listeners about how the likelihood of getting money is almost non-existent, and I tell them, but you know what? complain to the licensing board, and then they get back to me that they never heard back, they never did anything, nothing ever happened. And then when I did research on this several years ago, I found that there was something like less than five vets in a period of several years that ever even got uh, a warning or a censure from the licensing board, much less losing their license. The situations, Lori, when vets have lost their license was after multiple, multiple situations where countless animals suffered or died, Mm. and then finally they took their license away. There's many efforts around the country to solve these problems. Some people are working on trying to get more money when you lose an animal to recognize that pain and suffering is real and that pet owners deserve to be compensated for the loss of their pet just like a mother or father who lost their child. Okay, we gotta take a quick break, and after we return, we're gonna discuss veterinary malpractice insurance issues with our guest, Bob Ferber. This is Animals Today. Bob, great discussion so far. So uh, most veterinarians, they don't really carry a significant amount of malpractice insurance. Um, How does that play into these uh, issues? Uh, It's a very big factor, and it's the major argument that the veterinary community makes for, for saying why people, their clients, should not recover uh, more than the value of the vet bill, you know, that they shouldn't be getting pain and suffering. Uh, according to some uh, some information, veterinarians pay approximately $234 a year for million-dollar policy uh, on average. That is a fraction of what doctors pay. Yes. Uh, what, the, what the veterinary community has made the argument that If we start allowing people to sue vets for pain and suffering and loss of companionship, the insurance bills will skyrocket the way they actually are with human doctors who pay pretty, very high premiums, thousands and thousands of dollars, and that that cost would be passed on to the consumers. As many of your listeners probably feel, veterinary bills are already very high, and many of my friends say, oh, everybody's overcharging and it's too expensive. Uh, The veterinarian community says, well, if you think it's bad now, if you start suing us and we have to pay out for pain and suffering, we're going to be passing that cost on to you. The other argument, by the way, against allowing people to sue vets for more money is that vets believe that they will become very, it'll interfere with the relationship of the vet and the client, that they'll be more defensive, that they'll be more, they'll be afraid to be open, they'll be afraid to try things that maybe might not work, but might 
work and you know that an animal is suffering with a terrible disease or you know a, ter- a fatal disease they might not be willing to try something that would work because they're afraid of malpractice so that's a big obstacle the argument peter is raging it's still going on i've seen debates about it and nobody really knows if that's really true or not there's disagreements about it but yeah. that's the part, you know it's it's part of the problem yeah Bob, we're going to wrap up this discussion going back to where we started. Uh, How can pet owners and pet guardians, what do they have in their power to sort of prevent these situations from happening to where you really have to wonder whether lawsuit really has to happen or avoiding this idea of malpractice having occurred? I think that the client that pet owners have a lot of power in preventing malpractice. And what I mean by that is that you can't make your vet or teach your vet to how to be a better vet. But communication, building up a relationship with your vet where where you the, you are making sure that your vet knows everything that they need to know to make an informed decision. You know, and that involves a good relationship between the pet owner and the vet. If a, if a animal is going into surgery, it's real important that you not just drop your dog off and say, I'll pick him up at the end of the day or tomorrow, but that you have a dis- and not just a discussion with the, re- the receptionist. Well, you know, my dog is how old and you fill out a form that did your dog not eat in the last 24 hours. But a real discussion with the veterinarian who's doing it about, well, do you understand that my dog has had this issue? This is the kind of food that he's on. I give him these supplements that he has had a reaction to something several years ago. Uh, Making sure that if you have different vets, that the vet that's doing the surgery has all the vet records. And that making sure that he or she has read those records so that he's, he or she is fully informed. A very important part of this is when you get medications from your vet, making sure the vet goes over all the consequences of the vet. Don't be afraid to say to the vet, what are the possible consequences? What happens if this goes wrong? What animals should not have this medication? Maybe the most important thing is when you bring your animal home from surgery is what am I supposed to look for if something is going yeah. wrong yeah. and not waiting? Uh, I, I, and while you can't make your vet a better vet from what they learned in vet school, giving them the most information possible, being a patient advocate for your own animal and not being, able, not being afraid to stand up and demand answers, that will help. And if you have a veterinarian who brushes you aside and says, don't worry about it, I know what to do, then maybe you should consider getting a different vet. Right. If your veterinarian's not willing to have that discussion with you, then that's a red flag. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it would be, it's the same for a human doctor, too. Right. Right. Absolutely. Lori, when we were talking in talking about what to do if you you're, what to do when you realize that the vet did something wrong or you think your vet did something wrong, one of the first things that I suggest to people to do, even before they go to a lawyer or start anything confrontational, is to see if they know another veterinarian who is willing to review the records. It's something that I recommend to people all the time. If you have a trusted another vet that is a friend or another vet 
that you've used before. See if they're willing to look at the vet records. In many, many cases, the other vet that you trust implicitly will say and explain to you that, you know, the vet didn't do anything wrong, or this was something that anybody could have done. Or it may be that they'll say, like in your situation, Lori, that everybody gets this antibiotic after the surgery, and I can't believe that vet didn't do that, and I wish you luck in court. Yeah. So, Bob, someone's pet was harmed or even killed by a veterinarian. What do you say to them? Lori, over the years, I've talked to countless people who have lost their their animals and have called me wondering if there was a malpractice case. And as we've learned today, in almost every situation, they don't have a, a case or it's not worth going. But what I've learned is the most important feeling is they want to know that they did everything they could and have they have closure because they feel that they've done everything for their pet including in making inquiries, talking to experts, talking to a lawyer maybe, talking to other vets, and the comfort of knowing that in spite of the tragedy that you've done everything you could and that you gave them a very good life for the time they were with you, and keeping that in perspective, I found that most people, that gives them closure and they can move on. And in more cases than not, you find them at the shelter you know, a couple of weeks later, saying, I'm going to take it another one. Yeah. Bob Ferber, thank you so much. You're welcome. More with Animals Today right after the break. year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Do you know what declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cats experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. 
Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Back to animals today. Peter, World Rhino Day is approaching. Yeah. So I thought we'd learn some facts about rhinos. Okay. Good. How many species of rhinos are there? Yeah, I've always wondered that. Five. Okay. Seven Mm. or ten. I'll go five. Five is correct. The African white rhino, the African black rhino, and in Asia there's the greater one-horned rhino, Sumatran rhino, and the Javan rhino. Okay. Wow. Are rhinos herbivores or carnivores? I'm going to say they're herbivores. Correct. They eat plants only. True or false, rhinos are hairy animals. Oh, I'm going to say they are hairless. That's correct. Rhinos Mm. have very little hair, mostly on their ears and the tips of their tails. So rhinos have thick skin, similar to elephants. Rhino skin can be up to two inches thick, but extremely sensitive skin, similar to the elephants. So What do rhinos do to prevent sunburn to their sensitive skin? They try to avoid the direct sun. They cover themselves in leaves. They wallow in mud. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to, I'm going to go with mud. Correct. They cover themselves in mud to protect them against the sun rays and getting sunburned. And also the mud makes it difficult for insects to bite their sensitive skin. And of course the mud helps them cool off on hot days. Do you know the small, colorful birds? Oh, I know where you're going. Ah, called that are found throughout sub-Saharan Africa, and more specifically on the backs yeah. of white and black rhinos. Yeah, no idea. Oxpeckers. Ox? Mm. And oxpeckers are rhinos' best friend because oxpeckers eat insects and ticks off the backs of rhinos, keeping the rhinos free from some of the more annoying pests in the wild. Yeah, those ticks. Uh. Male rhinos are known as bulls. Female rhinos are known as what? Mm. Oh, boy. Bull and a mm, flower. (laughs) I don't know. A uh, a doe. Cow. Oh, yeah. Their young are called? Oh. Oh, they're not pups. That wouldn't make sense. How about, uh, go ahead. Calves. It's like too obvious. (laughs) The name rhinoceros Mm. means a large nostrils. B, river horse, or C, nose horn. Mm. I'll go nose horn. Correct. Yeah. It river comes from, horse, I think, is in the Yes. Hippo. Hippopotamus. Yeah. So nose horn mm-hmm. comes from ancient Greek words rhino, nose. Yep. Saras, horn. Mm. And you're correct. River horse in Greek 
is hippopotamus. River horse, because hippopotamuses love water. Hippos spend up to 16 hours a day submerged in rivers and lakes to keep their massive bodies cool. They're great swimmers and can hold their breath underwater for up to five minutes. And actually, some rhinos can swim. Did you know that? No. Only some Asian rhinos Mm. can swim. They can cross rivers, no problem. However, African rhinos are terrible swimmers and can drown in deep water. How many toes on each foot of the rhino? Three Four or five? I go with three. Three is correct. White rhinos are the second largest land mammal in the world. True or false? Oh, my goodness. It's the second largest land mammal. I'm going to say that's true. True. What's the largest land mammal in the land world? mammal in the world. The African elephant. Elephants are correct. White and black rhinos are actually the same color. True or false? Okay. Oh, that's a mind bender. Actually the same color. I'm going to say false. True. (laughs) Despite the names, both species of African rhinos have the same gray skin color. Wow. The difference between white and black rhinos is their lips. The white rhinos have a wide, squared lip. Black rhinos have a pointy upper lip. Can you picture the lips on a rhino? (laughs) Can you picture the lips on a pig? (laughs) If If you're standing still, say... 90 feet away from a rhino. Mm -hmm. Do you think he can see you? I'm going to say no. No, because rhinos have poor vision, but they have great sense of smell, so they would probably smell you. Yeah. Are rhinos aggressive toward people? Yeah. Rhinos try to avoid contact with people, but you can encounter an aggressive male or a mother with her young, and you better watch out because they may charge. So how large are rhinos? They weigh about the same as 20, 50-pound dogs. Oh, my goodness. They weigh about the same as two mid-sized cars? Or do they weigh about the same as 2,000 pounds of feathers? (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) I'll go with the 2,000 pounds of whatevers. (laughs) Whatever. They weigh about the same as two mid-sized cars. Wow. Yeah. That's more than 2,000 pounds. Yes. Males can weigh up to 5,100 pounds. That is incredible. True or false? Humans can run faster than rhinos. I'm going to go false on that one. False. Rhinos are speed machines. Rhinos can run 30 to 40 miles per hour. So good advice would be to move out of the way if they're running towards you because you won't be able to outrun them for sure. A group of rhinos Mm. is called a crash... A bunch or a storm? Mm, Oh, wow. How about a storm? A crash. Crash. I think you told me that once before. I did. So what do you do if you see a crash of rhinos running towards you? Wow. Uh, (laughs) Lie on the ground and pretend you're dead, I I guess, right? You have no choice. The rhino's horn will grow continuously throughout his entire life. True or false? True. True. For the white rhino, the horn grows about seven centimeters per year. The Javan rhinos are only found on one place on Earth. Where is that? Not Java. Yes. (laughs) See? A wild heritage site in Java is home to the last remaining wild Javan rhinos on Earth. But they have a volcano nearby, and there's always the threat of tsunamis. Peter, true or false, rhinos are critically endangered. Oh, yeah. True. Rhinos are some of the most endangered species on Earth. Three of the five rhino species are all at extremely high risk of extinction in the wild. The biggest threat? Oh, human threats. Yes, Yes. poaching for their horns. 
Rhinos don't really have natural predators. It's just us humans that are killing them. They say over 7,100 rhinos have been killed by poaching in the last 10 years. That's around two rhinos every day. Mm. Poaching gangs are becoming increasingly sophisticated and in some cases using helicopters to track the rhinos. And once the animals are shot with guns or tranquilizing darts, their horns are removed using chainsaws and quickly airlifted away. The whole operation can take as little as 10 minutes. And if the rhino isn't already dead, it will often bleed to death. Ground up Rhino horn is used in traditional Asian medicine, believing it cures a variety of things, including cancer and hangovers. And the horn is seen as a status symbol, particularly in Vietnam. You know, there are areas, Peter, where people are trying to protect the rhinos. And I read there are some areas where these rhinos are tranquilized and their horns are removed in hopes that the poachers will just leave the hornless rhinos alone. Yeah, I read about that. I wonder if that works. Yeah. But the horns of rhinos are made of keratin. That's all it is. Same protein that makes up our hair and our fingernails. So that's what these poor rhinos are being mutilated for. And of course, habitat loss are an increasing threat to rhinos as population by humans and infrastructure grows, encroaching on the rhino's habitat. Okay, Peter, World Rhino Day. Yeah, tough times for rhinos. Yeah, really. Well, thank you for tuning into Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.